Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well. Excellent, excellent. Anything happened this week? Well, this is going to be embarrassing, but I destroyed a Greek New Testament. Why is that embarrassing? So I'm what sure ha- you had a good reason for it. <laughs> what happened was I wa- I needed to... I have a number of projects that involve, I want them all, I want a Greek New Testament all in loose leaves, not bound together. So what I did is I took the spine off, took all the signatures apart, cut all the binding away, so now I have loose leaf pages of the Greek New Testament, mostly so that I can carry them around with me and read and memorize them, and I don't have to carry around the whole thing. And it's it's kind of weird sounding, but it makes me really <laughs> happy. It's the first time I've ever done something like that. Well, shoot, man, if it makes you happy, but that's I've got a I've got a problem that I <laughs> have to. That sounds like a good know. problem to me. Wanting to have access to right. you know the scriptures in a different way. You said this is the Greek New Testament that you yes. did this to. Yes, yeah, sounds fun. And and Derek, in case y'all didn't even know, was is fluent in Greek. Reads the Greek New Testament flawlessly. Well, not flawlessly, but. I think it's flawlessly. He had, he hasn't done it with any flaw on this show yet or any other time I've heard yeah. him speak Greek, you know, in the context of the Greek New Testament. All right, cool, man. Um well, anyway, why don't we go ahead and get into the news for this week? A lot happened, but we're just going to focus on a couple of things. What what do you want to start with if anything in particular? So, let's talk about this Utah's conversion therapy ban. Yeah, what exactly happened here, Derek? So, it looks like there was a compromise between the LDS church and LGBT groups in the uh, in Utah, and somehow everyone got on board to make this new rule that applies to professionally licensed uh, professionals in Utah so that conversion therapy is banned, this idea that you can somehow get rid of the gay, and you know, so I don't know, that doesn't work. <laughs> I mean... But uh, that practice leads to a lot of suffering. A lot of false hopes are built up. There can be a lot of suicidal ideation based on promises that cannot be delivered. Yeah. And then people feel pressure to change. It's just, none of this works. It's just really awful. And 18 states have already banned this practice. And Utah is now the ninth. And I believe it's the only... The 19th, you mean? The 19th. Okay. Is that what I said? You said the ninth. The 19th, yes. Not it's here now the there. 19th. Um, and they... It might be the only conservative state to have done that, which mm. I think that's a testament to the to the power of the the good people of Utah, especially the Latter Day Saints. Yeah, very who are like we. This is this is and and our church has made a statement that conversion therapy is not okay and we should not be practicing it. Now, Derek, there have been there have been efforts in the past to get a law like this to pass, and that's in essence where conversion therapy would be banned. Uh, why did do you happen to know why this one was able to make it was able to get past and the previous two over the last year have not been able to? So I think what what they needed to do was hammer out a compromise on the language to specify what exactly is included and what's not included. And this just to be extra safe, for example, we people wouldn't want this to be used against clergy preaching their doctrines right okay and so if someone has a religious belief they still have the freedom to express that but what they can't do that is as a licensed professional like a therapist or psychiatrist okay psychologist they're not allowed to claim that as part of their professional practice 
but but the rights of clergy to speak their mind are still intact. I see. And that's that's actually the same for all these other state 18 states. They all have this exception in them. There's mm. no way that this could be used to abridge people's freedom of religion. Gotcha. So in professional so I think Yes. So I think the bill could have been fine the way it was, but someone decided we need to be extra clear that this can't be used in that unconstitutional manner. And so that's kind of what happened. And then all parties that came to the table came to this compromise, and that's kind of – or that clarification. And that's my understanding of what happened. Great. That sounds like a victory. Uh, anything else about that story that stands out, or should we move on to the next thing? Just – to talk about how activism happens in the church. I think there are a lot of people that say, well, if we leave the church and make a big noise and stomp our feet and, and cause a public demonstration, that that really changes hearts and minds. And in this case, I think it was just people from different perspectives coming together, building relationships and building trusted relationships, which you can't really do if you're stomping your feet and annoying someone and, and yelling at them. Now, there's a place for that kind of activism, right? Certainly. Especially in the in the secular world. Yeah. But we've got leaders of the church who are trying to do the right thing as soon as they know what it is. And I think given that, relationships, especially behind the scenes, can really help move things along. Mm. Cool. Now, speaking of activism, that brings us to the next story, which was uh, BYU is going to allow same-sex dancing at the nation's top amateur ballroom championship, a.k.a. Dance sport. I used to work at the Marriott Center. I don't know if I told you this, Derek, but uh, I worked for BYU Concessions for a season, and I uh -huh. got to work a couple of uh, dance sport events. And it was, I didn't know how big of a deal it was until it started happening, and you saw just all this dope ballroom competition happening. But anyway, like I said, they're going to allow same sex dancing at dance sport. And it seems to be, it seems that the National Dance Council of America has, re has revised their policy a few months ago back in September, so that uh, same-sex and gender-neutral couples will be able to compete with opposite-sex couples in all genres, in all competitions and championships sanctioned by the NDCA, dance board included, which is the event that uh, BYU hosts every year. Now, BYU would have to honor this revision if they wanted to host the event uh, with the sanctioning of the NDCA, but initially they refused. And though the cause of their change of heart is unclear, the change does it, the change was preceded by past champions uh, boycotting the competition, saying that they were going to sit out in addition to several other complaints from uh, from the ballroom dance community. What do you think about that, Derek? I think, first of all, that's a brilliant use of allyship because I remember reading someone's quote, one of these expert dancers saying, well, I'm not going to go to this championship because it's not going to mean anything to me unless I'm competing against all the best dancers. Yeah. And if ha if people aren't allowed to be there, it's not a national, it's not a championship. Yeah. If not, if you can't have all the best there, it's not a, uh, th that medal would be worthless to me. Mm -hmm. and I think that's a very impressive display of power and the way to use your privilege in a way that that takes a risk upon yourself to help someone else because they could have said nope you're we're not we're going to still do it this way and you're going to sit out because you said you're sitting out and that's what they would have had to do yeah and that's a really Christ-like move as we've talked before Big time. sort of 
shedding your privilege yes. and or at least yes. the exercise of it in order to lift someone else up. Well, it was kind of shedding it because they weren't going to compete. They were straight up just going to sit out of the competition, you know, if the best people weren't going to be there, if not everybody got the opportunity to compete. And, you know, I know how much people look forward to that competition. That is probably the biggest amateur competition on a collegiate and studio level in the country. And they were going to miss it simply because they weren't going to be able to compete against everybody. So that was a power move for sure, but it was also a very, um, a very Christ-like move in that they shed that privilege in order to send this message. Right. You know, it's a really cool thing to do. So I had a lot of respect for that particular couple because, you know, like you said, they were, they were allies. They, you know, there's a husband and a wife team, traditionally, uh, you know, traditional ballroom, you know, not gay or anything like that. They were just like, I want to compete up against the best, and I can't do that if you discriminate against uh, same gender or gender-neutral gender couples. Right, and I think this speaks to another element of cultural change more broadly will affect the church because once it gets clear to everyone that homophobia is not okay, that straight supremacy is not okay, our church is going to be one of the last to to have it if everyone else moves on then we're we're going to have to move on too. Right. There's just no way around that. Yeah, big time. Um yeah, I think that's so cultural change more more broadly in the United States will end up prompting us to rethink things. And I I think to some extent that is true with racism as well. Mm-hmm. That uh, conditions have changed somewhat not that racism is fixed but now it's less 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 acceptable to be openly racist mm-hmm. in certain ways uh now that that's the case or more the case then then the church said well we've got to rethink this mm. absolutely and speaking of which that brings us to our next story which probably was the one circulating most aggressively in the church this week which was the quote-unquote error in the LDS church manual. Something that's been... This is what happened. So the printed Come Follow Me lesson manual talks about the curse that came upon the Lamanites in the early chapters of 2 Nephi. Though the online manuals have been corrected, the print manuals still contain a disavowed teaching with regard to the curse, which says that the curse that fell upon the Lamanites or at least a sign of it, was dark skin. So part of me is puts error in scare quotes simply because the church prides itself on a meticulous screening process for our manuals. Additionally, this they did the same thing last year. Like This isn't the first time the church has made a mistake about a racial element of our doctrine. Like, that, that's what really makes me think this wasn't a mistake because once is a mistake, but twice is a pattern. You know what I'm saying? Just that, that such a big oversight was made over such a critical teaching, it doesn't feel like an accident to me. Like how are you going to mess up the whole Philip and Onesimus thing You know, just a few months ago and now mess up the dark skin curse thing You know, just a few months later? Like these are two big mistakes, both with racial elements to them, and the church has yet to fully address them and correct them by, you know, retracting them from the online manuals for, you know, the former and now making sure that all manuals don't have these incorrect teachings. So that is that's the other thing. But uh, the folks at headquarters are simply not thinking about this stuff. That's what this really comes down to for me. 
and they're not including our voices in the conversation surrounding this stuff. Otherwise, such critical errors may have been avoided, but they weren't meant to be avoided. This is, this is how white supremacy works. We weren't sought at those high levels because there's not enough concern for us at those levels. These mistakes are only a few months apart, and they're, they're the only two mistakes that we know of in the manual so far, and it's not a coincidence that they're problematic for the same reason, mm-hmm. which is because of how they talk about people of color. Yeah, and and the, the, these are mistakes that, according to our official position, shouldn't have been made. There's now there's a lot of mistakes about LGBTs, for example, in yeah. our in our manuals. But at least those they can claim. Well, that that's where we are. But these they're even behind where we're supposed to be and where we've said right. we are. And that's I think- the other thing. Like the 2013 essay that we just put out on race and the priest. Well, not just this is 2013. Yeah. So this is like seven years ago, but. The quote, like I got the quote here. It says, Today the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a pre-mortal life. That is, we, we teach that. We teach that. We, we started doing that seven years ago, and here we are in the Come Follow Me manual in 2020, and that teaching is still present. Like, we're behind, exactly as you said, where we say we are. Which is another problem, right? And there's so there's no excuse. There I mean, isn't just well, there's no excuse for like anti-LGBT stuff. But at least in this case, we can hold them accountable in a way yes. that we couldn't for other issues where, right. where we haven't even arrived at, at talking about them that way yet. Right. And like you said, it's it's hard to classify that as an error because it's it almost like that would be like me saying, "Oh, I accidentally say said the N word." Mm-hmm. When you can't say that by accident because what happens is it, what's in your heart comes out your mouth. Mm-hmm. And I think here's a, a real example of what's in the heart of the bureaucracy that's creating these manuals is coming out. Coming out of uh, coming out the ink on paper. And so, like you said, part of the problem is that they don't have black people on those committees. Right. They don't have enough black people in the mid-level bureaucracy or at the top leadership of the church. Right. Like I I would not edit anything about black people and not actually hire a black person to help me with. Right. It. Right. You know, pay them for their emotional labor and their their expertise and their lived experience justly so that we can all benefit from from no I mean I just wouldn't wouldn't do that right. I, I just don't understand why they wouldn't do that so that's why it's hard to call it an error like like oh you just press the you know the wrong control alt combination and it somehow just popped up there you know that's what Aaron said when 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 he made the golden calf <laughs> he said, "Oh, you know, I just put this gold here, and it out popped this calf. I mean, like, mm-hmm. how did that happen? Hmm. There, no, there are steps in the middle that we're not acknowledging here, and yeah. we gotta, we have to acknowledge those steps. We didn't just get here from gold to calf. That's not how this happened. And in some ways, idol, this is idolatry because you are, you are defaming and denying the image of God." in people who are all alike unto God. And when you're doing mm-hmm. that, you're you're idolizing a false understanding of God. Yeah. And that's idolatry, one of the most grievous sins. Yeah. And so I just, it's hard to say that this is a mistake, but I'm glad that they, they apologized to some extent. To some extent. But that what they didn't apologize for was the situation that created it. Like right. we only have 
certain people at the mid-level management of this bureaucracy, which I think some of them are more problematic mm. than the top leadership because the top leadership has years of wisdom and nuance and experience and they've got, they, they're dealing with all this stuff and they can understand, oh, there's com complexity and exceptions. You know, even, even Elder, even President Oaks once said, I'm a general authority, so I teach the general principles. I don't teach the exceptions because it's up to you to figure out the exceptions. Mm. He has said stuff like that, but people at the mid-level have such a, can have such a very wooden, doctrinaire and dogmatic understanding of, well, someone above us knows everything, and we can just go ahead and quote old-timey materials from Joseph Fielding Smith and not think about it because they are so secure in the shallowness and small-mindedness of of what they think they have. And what's dangerous is not what they don't know, but what they think they know that they don't. Mm -hmm. or what, what You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They have no sense of humility or limitation. Even Paul said, like, w we know in part and we prophesy in part, but mm -hmm. when the perfect comes, they they think the perfect has already come. Right, right. And they've got, they're all set. And, 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 that's I think this this sort of overclaiming by these mid-level management people who are writing the curriculum that's the real that's that's where I'm putting some of this because I don't think it was the people at the top like the the 12 who are reviewing every paragraph of this right they're, they're, not. they're not doing that they don't yeah. have time for that so it's the mid-level people who are doing it in the name of the people of the above them and hurting people below them. That's the real problem. And then people like Elder Stevenson, when they hear about this, like, we're shocked that when we found out about this, we immediately disavowed it, which shows us that they're not reading all these right. all these things. And they're, they're not, not reading in the way that we think they're involved. And they're not reading all of the translations in all right. the languages. There's just right. a lot of work that happens in this bureaucracy that doesn't even get to the top. Mm -hmm. And it does. it's not supported from the lived experience and voices of the people at the bottom and that's when you've got this big mismatch here uh on both in both directions mm -hmm. and i just think that's that's a real tragedy um yeah so what do you think the church should do do you think they should recall every saint last printed manual and print them all again well, I would appreciate that personally, simply because the people, the majority of the people who are using the print manuals are probably older folks that yeah. actually think about this stuff or that think that the dark skin is a curse and that loot and that, you know, don't use the online materials and haven't even seen the story online because they don't use social media like that. So I think the church, you know, with their resources should recall those manuals or should at least have reprints of that particular page and mm. that, you know, Members of bishoprics, stake presidencies, you know, hand them out and make sure that that correction is put into those printed manuals because that should not be taught by anybody. That should not be seen by anybody. Mm -hmm. Like, it, again, if we disavowed it, we don't want people, especially those who are most prone to thinking that it's still a thing, to be teaching that in their classes or to be reading that and having that idea about the origin of skin color as a curse be affirmed. Like, so I do want the church to either recall those manuals right. or print a correction that is going to go into those manuals. That would be the more cost-efficient option, obviously, but yeah. something has to be done on a, on a, on an institution. Exactly. Level. Because part of the, part of the, I've heard that these manuals are written for a three week convert to step into the calling and be able to teach something. Yeah. This isn't, 
an, you know, written for experts. This is written so that someone can get up there and have something to say and have some structure that no matter what background they're coming from. Now, if that's the case, think about all these three-week converts that get this manual that have never heard read this. this. Like, and they may not know what happened in 1978. They may not know what happened in, in the race in the priesthood. They, they may not know any of this. Right. Now, if I had that manual, of course I would not teach that that way, right? Uh-huh. But there's other people that don't have certain privileges and certain experiences. They're going to innocently teach that, and they're going to teach that as the word of God in, in, in classes. In, and I'm like, this is not okay. Or worse, what if it's a person of color that experiences that, that receives that manual, has to read that and be like, oh, I'm cursed. My dark skin is the result of a curse. Like, that's, that's traumatic, you know, and that's that's going to yeah. cause a problem. My my challenge, what the sense that I got is the few African American members of the church, and I'm saying that to, to specify America here in in the United States before 1978, many of them actually believed in the curse, mm. and I find that really because um, in my in my heart, I would think, oh, they're just all resisting it and denying it, and they're just pushing on, knowing it's wrong. But I imagine the real tragedy is a lot of them thought it was true. Mm. What do you know about that, if anything? Yeah, the saints that I, the saints that I know who were members pre nineteen seventy eight, just about all of them have struggled with that teaching. Yeah, but none of them have affirmed aloud that they believe that they were cursed. Okay. at least for at least in a sense where there was no cognitive dissonance. You know what I'm saying? Mm. I don't know anybody who believed. That the believed in the curse pre nineteen seventy eight who didn't challenge the curse if that makes any sense okay so like the uh, you know many many of these people are you know some of the leaders that we met at the uh, Black LDS conference mm-hmm. legacy conference two years ago like uh, I know none of them you know quote unquote believed the curse or at least were uh, affected so by the curse that they actually believed that uh, they had no place in the gospel or whatever. But my general experience has been the majority of the people that I know, at least all of them I know, have at least expressed some kind of cognitive dissonance when it came to uh, learning about the curse and what that meant mm-hmm. for them. Nobody completely bought into the idea that they were cursed. Okay. So uh, that that's all I can offer. Okay. Well, we can talk about this more next week, right? When I think we it's get, next week or we get, the week after. When we actually get that in the come follow Yeah, week. yeah, because uh, in a week or two, we're actually going to be discussing the first couple of chapters of Second Nephi, which is where this curse will be discussed, and uh, we'll, we'll get... We'll get way into it. We'll talk about the curse. We'll talk about mm-hmm. the place of black folks in the scriptures. And we'll be sourcing heavily material from uh, a presentation by Brother DeRice Gray and Dr. Marvin Perkins himself uh, about blacks in the scriptures. Okay. It, it has saved. It, it literally saved and, you know, exhilarated my testimony prior to my own mission. And it's probably something, one of those things that I credit most with my ability to remain in the church uh, with my black identity. So I'm looking forward to re-exploring that mm-hmm. uh, as, as part of this podcast. And we'll make sure all of, you know, all the listeners get yeah. access to this as well because it's, it's a very important presentation if you want to learn more about you know, skin color curses or the places mm-hmm. of people with dark skin in the context of uh, the priesthood, the temple, or even just the scriptures. It's a, it's a fascinating study. Yeah, and that's a good. It, it will be Black History Month in yes. February when. And now, of course, I also think we should do Black History every month. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's is important to note. Yeah. So, uh, if there's nothing else we want to say about that error, that would uh, bring us to our last news story, which is, uh, which is the death of Clayton Christensen. 
Um, did you get to? Did you know him well at all? Because Clayton lives out here in Boston, or he lived out here in Boston, rather. And yeah, I met him once. Okay. I didn't know him in an ongoing relationship, but I know people who know him, and I met him once at an event, and we had a conversation for some for some time, um, and he seemed to like me, and because, uh, of course, I knew about him before this. And one of the things I brought up to him was his concept of disruptive innovation in the business world, mm. how a certain new technology or new idea can sort of subvert the market and completely change it. And one of the best examples of this is online streaming videos. Like mm. back in the day, people used to rent videos and have a hard copy or they would buy them. Now they're streaming. And once the streaming started, it completely changed the whole market. And this is an example of disruptive innovation, something that kind of looks inferior at first but then actually tur turns out to dominate the market and actually change the whole market to to bend to this new thing mm. and i asked him about disruptive innovation and progress for lgbt individuals in the church and he really liked my idea that progress for lgbt individuals will come through a process of disruptive innovation that there will be it, it won't be this completely gradual shift over. There needs to be certain breakthroughs along the way that at first will look like an underdog coming up, but then it will become prominent and, and take over the sort of the marketplace of ideas. And he's like, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. So I don't know if he fully thought cool. through it ever, but I, but I definitely think that this applies to... Um, to the concept of revelation in general, you have this literal breakthrough of heaven breaking into this world and disrupting what's going on here and completely changing the whole landscape. Yeah. And so that's kind of my one conversation with, with Clayton Christensen. Sweet. That's pretty cool. I only met the guy once and we only exchanged pleasantries. Like I saw him and I knew he was important, but you know, I didn't know why. I just got the sense that he was an important dude, but maybe it was just his height. Like the dude's huge. He's like six foot 10 or something like that. He had a very yeah, firm yeah. grip, but uh, yeah, I didn't, I kind of, uh, I guess I didn't know the impact that he had on people's lives until mm -hmm. I saw just my social media feeds just flooded with, you know, the, the news of his death. And he's had a big impact on, I think, the way Amazon and Netflix and Apple have made some of their decisions. They've mm -hmm. actually used his stuff to say right. this is how we're going to make our decisions about right. where we research and invest and develop yeah like he's had a tremendous influence not only in the world of you know our church with his like he's best known in the church for his work when it comes to every for member missionary work i think yeah. that's what he's best known for but you know outside of the church you know he's also very well known just for his contributions to the business world and just how people think and stuff i still have innovators dilemma on my audio on my audible queue and uh you know it just speaks to how much influence that guy mm -hmm. had in this world it really is an incredible thing before we move on to the come follow me just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the dialogue podcast network a collective of independent interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful respectful and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the lds tradition thought and arts and culture Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. 
Now, this idea of disruptive innovation is going to come up again as we discuss the Come Follow yes. Me, uh, particularly when we get to the story of Nephi breaking his bow. But I do want to talk a little bit about what First Nephi 16, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 3, teaches about allyship. Now, real quick, what we're going to learn, what we're going to see in uh, First Nephi chapter 16 through uh, 22, a lot happens here. We are going to see Nephi is going to break his bow. Nephi is going to fix his bow, or rather make a new one. Ishmael's going to die. He is going to uh, be commanded to build a boat, successfully build a boat, not without some trouble from his uh, brothers and not without some trouble from his family. Laman and Lemuel are going to mistreat Nephi once they get on the water. Nephi is going to prophesy using the words of Isaiah. There's just a whole lot going on. Oh, we also get the Leahona. Like yes. the Leahona like, comes pretty much in the first few verses of uh, chapter 16. so Right, and if you didn't hear our episode last week, go back and listen to that one, and we talk a little bit about the Leahona versus the Iron Rod as different ways of navigating and how that impacts our faith life. Yes, yes, definitely do that. So anyway, with that brief summary, like I said, um, what I really like about this uh about this particular lesson is that one of the lessons that we learn here is actually a scripture mastery, which is that uh, we should liken all scriptures unto us that it might be for our profit and learning. And we're going to see Nephi do that multiple times where he likens the scriptures. And we're also going to do that ourselves as we read through these, uh, as we read through these verses. For example, Mm. this week we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day And starting next week, it will be Black History Month, as Derek has noted, where we celebrate the lives and accomplishment of great black folks as well as the resilience of our people. As as will often happen, just as a matter of uh, necessity and sometimes convenience, these are also times to remind our non-melanated counterparts that we've got a ways to go. Um, You know, just tis the season. For example, MLK Day, as is wont to happen on every MLK Day, there's going to be white folks who whip out their favorite MLK quotes, usually the sanitized ones, but they can't bring themselves to utter the words Black Lives Matter for whatever reason. And inevitably, someone's going to call them out on this nonsense and call them out on their fair-weather fandom and get defensive about it because they don't appreciate their commitment to racial equity and justice being questioned. They don't appreciate their character being questioned. Uh, That's... That's a pretty natural response, I think. However, the appropriate response is to receive the counsel and be better. And I just wanted to relay an example of this I saw just over Christmas break. So uh, my sister, Dr. LaShawn Williams, and I, we got to appear on uh, Richard Osler's podcast, Listen, Learn, and Love. And he recalled that the last time I was on his show, which was with Tekovi, if you guys remember that episode, he was the uh, black temple worker who got released because of his hair and then reinstated just a day later. He talked about how on that episode where he had Tekovi and I on that he was made uncomfortable by something that I said. However, I didn't know that anything I had said made him uncomfortable. Uh, I have no idea what it was to this day. But he said that it had, it had expanded the way he looked at race relations, and he said it made him better, which was something I really appreciated. So I asked myself the question, why was Papa Osler able to respond to something in a way that made him better, while other folks would respond to that same level of racial discomfort with defensiveness? So uh, 
chapter 16, verse 3 actually gives us some insight into that, and it explains this disparity. Now, this is just after Nephi interprets the vision of the tree of life to his brothers, and they say to him in verse 1, Thou hast declared unto us hard things, more than we are able to bear. In my opinion, that's a pretty mature way to say, I don't want to hear it. You know what I'm saying? But uh, Nephi acknowledges this, which is something that black people often do when white people state their discomfort with some kind of racial call out. And uh, after he acknowledges this, he goes further in explaining that the guilty taketh the truth to be hard for it cutteth them to the very center. Then Nephi drops this gem in verse three, which explains this difference between Papa O and lesser white mortals. He says, if ye were righteous and were willing to hearken to the truth and give heed unto it that ye might walk uprightly before God, then ye would not murmur because of the truth and say, Thou speakest hard things against us, close quote. Because what do your feelings matter if the council's going to get you right? Like Nephi wasn't mean, he wasn't disrespectful, he wasn't condescending, and he didn't belittle his brothers. He told them the truth. And Nephi is trying to help y'all, and y'all be like, but that's hurting my feelings. You know what I'm saying? Just I know black folks that can relate to this on such a visceral level because we be calling people in all the time. And, you know, they'll always say things like that's hurting my feelings or things that indicate that hurts my feelings. You know, they'll 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 be like. Why are you so mean? Or how is that racist? Or I don't care. Or why does that matter? Or they'll pull that Uno reverse card and be like, well, I think you're racist. Something like oh. that. You know, the worst one. <laughs> but uh, the point is, white people trying to do better may get their feelings hurt, but they don't center themselves by deflecting to their hurt feelings like Lemon and Lemuel did, because that's what they did. They were like, thou speakest hard things against us, more than we can bear. That is not the point, Lemon and Lemuel. You may feel any kind of way that you want to, but you got to get right. Like, that's the whole point of this whole getting better thing. Like, your feelings are not the center of this conversation, not where truth is concerned. You take the truth, you receive it, and you do better. You don't make it about how you feel because your feelings are not going to change the Lord's mind on what you got to do. Your feelings mm -hmm. are just going to slow you down. They are going to prolong your journey, and they're going to, you know, they're, they're just not going to serve you in that way. You know what I'm saying? They do what Papa O did, and they simply do better. I posted something... Um, semi-provocative this past week on social media and uh, it was basically a read of straight white ex-mormons and uh, i didn't post it looking to get into debates i posted it to get folks to be more considerate of marginalized people in their faith transitions but the affected ex-mormons came out the woodwork to explain themselves explain their feelings which they didn't owe me by the way or say it i was wrong without refuting anything that i had actually said but if you're really trying to be better than just receive it and move on because according to Nephi that's what you should be doing if you're really trying to do right by people if black folks say or if queer folks are saying that this behavior you're engaging in is harmful the proper response is to cease that behavior and do better not try to explain why you're doing it or why you should be able to do it or what's mm -hmm. or, or what's wrong with them that they're hurt by it according to first Nephi chapter 16 verse 3 receive it and be better because if you are righteous and were willing to hearken to the truth and give heed unto it that you might walk uprightly before God, then thou wouldst not murmur because of the truth and say, thou speakest hard things against us, close quote. So, uh, yeah, that's what I picked up from those first three verses in chapter 16. Yeah, and and that's that's important because white people are socialized to center our feelings. Yeah. I, I mean, it's wrong, but that's the way it is. And right. so the the... the the gatekeeper of how we interact with everything is like how does this make me feel or like and that's that's kind of how we connect with that issue but the problem is our feelings don't matter right 
when you know black lives matter more than white people's feelings so if that's a word if you know there are people out there that are one misunderstanding away from being killed because of the color of their skin like your sister said yep and that is more important than whether i'm comfortable with facing some truth or not Mm -hmm. like that that's real um and and then some of these ex-Mormons are saying, well, we left the church because it benefits black people. I'm like, um, well, did did they ask you to do that? Yeah. Did they name that benefit? Yeah. You can't. And if, if people are saying, well, that doesn't help us, you can't say, well, I'm doing it to help you. Mm-hmm. There's that saying, nothing about us without us. Yep. And no one can use my name to say they're doing something for my benefit. If I'm not saying that's in my benefit, you just can't mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. So, so there we are. And I'm, I'm glad that you really pointed this out that the guilty it, it, taketh the truth to be hard. Yeah. And how that it, why people are stubborn, but if they had been righteous, they would have been li- willing to listen to the truth. Right. And that's all they would do. That's all they needed to do. That's why I like, Lift Papa Osler because that was just such an uncommon experience for me, for a mm-hmm. white person to mm-hmm. hear me and for them to not even utter their discomfort. They just receive it and they do yeah. better. I was so flabbergasted by that because I didn't even see it happening. He just did better and that's just really cool, man. And you know, someone who spoke the truth and was very unpopular was Dr. King. Okay, yeah. Like the, why, the, the most misleading thing about this holiday is to make him out to be this popular hero. I'm like, that's not the king that ever was alive. Right. Like he was hated. I remember someone, some white person blocked me on Facebook because because of a dispute over Black Lives Matter. He was like, oh, these Black Lives Matter activists are causing disruption and they're doing all this stuff and Dr. King would never do that. I'm like, I said, yes, he did. He did. He went he to did. jail several times. He was arrested for for all the civil disobedience. He blocked bridges. He blocked roads. He blocked all the stuff. And like, and then this this white person blocked me. I'm like, <laughs> that's someone who took the truth, the truth to be hard. The truth hurts, doesn't it? I showed pictures of Dr. King blocking streets, <laughs> and and he blocked me. Outstanding, outstanding. And that ha- this also happens with Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, people will will tame and domesticate Jesus into, this, Jesus into this like lovely white figure, like literally white figure who's yeah. nice. I'm like, he was good, but he wasn't always nice, right? Um, and that's what a living and vibrant familiarity with the New Testament gives you. Yes, it, I can't stress enough the the power of mastering the scriptures well because you get to to realize. There's depth and complexity in the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. He was not always fun to be around. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, thanks for naming that. Absolutely. And just the last thing, like I was thinking of, as you said that, remember there's that part where the people, after Jesus finished a sermon, they were like, this is, these are hard things to hear. Mm-hmm. Who can hear it? And then yep. a lot of disciples walked away, followed him no more. Yeah, that's in John 6. Mm-hmm. That's in John 6. Thank you. But, you know. Something that always is going to stand out to me is what Peter said when Jesus asked, will ye also go away? Where are we going to go? You got the words of eternal life. You know, the truth. They acknowledged it's the truth that matters most. It's not their feelings. It's the truth. And they followed that, you know, till they died. So that is 
I'm just another witness to this powerful takeaway of simply doing better in the face of these conversations that are at times uncomfortable. I'm about to go on. Is there anything else no. from this? Okay. I'm about to go on to uh, Nephi breaking his bow. Is there anything between these verses before we get to? Nope. Let's go on to the bow. Woo! Let's go on to the bow. Okay. So in this particular story, okay, Derek, I also got to tell you, I finally started watching the Book of Mormon videos. Uh oh. <laughs> well, look, man, in the Gospel Library app, they have these little, uh, I don't know what you call them. They're like these markers next to verses. And when you tap on the markers, <laughs> videos come up. So, like, there is a Book of Mormon, like, when you see these markers in your Gospel Library app, you can click on them, and a story, a Book of Mormon story that the church started, just started producing, will appear and you can watch it you can watch a dramatization of that particular story that you are reading about so of course i saw this and i was immediately curious and i watched and um i I just say this because i would like to at some point make reference to what i liked about these particular Mm -hmm. dramatizations of this story but anyway in this story nephi or sorry lehi's family has been in the wilderness for quite a while and the normal method of obtaining food has been for them to go hunting one day while hunting, Nephi, who apparently wields the most reliable weapon in the company, he breaks his bow, and as a result, his family does not eat. Laman and Lemuel complain, and even Lehi complains. So now Nephi, who seems to be the only one who hasn't lost their faith, takes some initiative and makes a new bow and crafts an arrow too. And then he goes to Lehi to ask him where he should continue his hunt, at which point Lehi has to repent for his faithlessness and then receive the revelation that Nephi needs. Nephi obtains food and his family is joyous and grateful to the Lord. Everybody eats. And that's basically the story. There's a couple things that I really feel the need to highlight um, within this particular story. Off the rip, off the rip, we have to acknowledge how understated the miracle of Nephi creating a new bow was. It's nowhere near as simple as the Book of Mormon's one verse explanation indicates. And as far as we know, Nephi wasn't an experienced uh bow maker or whatever they call these craftsmen. I don't know what they call them. But um, the reason I thought about this is because when I was in high school, I was a boy scout and my scout master was an archer. His sons were like national champions and all that stuff. Um, but he owned an archery shop. And I remember we went there frequently to shoot on his range and it was either him or some old guy that was there. But one day when we were there, we learned about what goes into selecting a bow selecting the right bow for you and what goes into creating a, a creating a bow. So um, what we learned was namely how the bows and arrows have to complement each other much in the same way that guns and ammo do. We learned about how the size and the tension of a bow must complement the arrows and the wielder of the bow and how factors like uh, uh, climate would determine the kind of bow you use right down to right down to the adhesive that's it used that's used in the construction. Basically, there's a lot to consider in choosing a bow, let alone constructing one. And this dude, Nephi, had to find the only wood in the Arabian Peninsula that was capable of making a wooden bow. He, he had to make it strong enough, to, strong enough and light enough that he could shoot moving targets with some accuracy. He had to make a bowstring compatible with the strength of a wooden bow and compatible with his own strength. And I don't think they had bowstring jigs back then. And then he and then and then he had to make an arrow straight enough to be accurate, sharp enough to kill, and long enough to accommodate the presumably looser draw of his wooden bow. 
So this is just all to say that what Nephi did in the construction of this bow was as much of a miracle. Okay, that's a stretch. It's almost as much of a miracle as him building this ship. Um, so that's just one thing I wanted to acknowledge before we went into the lessons of this particular story. Now, the first lesson that shot out to me was that Nephi had been faithful through this whole journey. So, so far as we can tell, his family had done what the Lord had asked in forsaking their homes, their property, retrieving their records at great peril, returning again to get Ishmael's family and were in the midst of an eight year journey through the wilderness. None of that stopped Nephi's bow, such a critical tool to the welfare of his family from breaking. Now, even though we do our ministering, magnify our callings, go to the temple, pay our tithing, we can still catch these afflictions. You know what I'm saying? Your job, you can still lose that. Your, your marriage, that still may not work out. And whatever that other thing is you prayed for, you still may not get it. Like one of the biggest lessons in this particular story, in the whole story of Lehi's family, is that obedience does not shield us from afflictions. Nephi, Mr. I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded, like his, his only means of getting food for his family what was was taken away you know like that's that that's a hard thing but this is all to say that god is not going to keep our bows from bake from breaking so to speak but the fact that nephi was able to construct a new bow despite not being an experienced bow craftsman should let us know that if our bows do break the lord will help us construct a new one every time and I think that's one of the most powerful lessons we can learn is that we can still catch these afflictions, but the Lord is still going to help us through them. So that's just one thing. Um, anything before I move on to the second lesson I got? Well, this, this is one thing that strikes me is not only did he probably not have experience making a bow, he probably didn't have much experience hunting either because hunting mm. was not, the primary means uh, for Israelites to get to get their food. I and mean, Lehi's family was rich, so he probably didn't have to hunt. By this time, even the poor people, it was mm -hmm. based on agriculture. They they um, had herds of domesticated animals and they grew crops. That's from from the time of the Torah. You've got this is what's what's here. You've got very little hunting in in the Bible. Mm. I mean, the the few examples of hunters I have are Nimrod. And Esau and Ishmael, they hunt, but they're not even Israelites. They're all um, not through the, the main lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're, and, and so there's, there's not this hunting tradition. Um, hunting in the, yeah, it just, I don't think that he probably had much experience at all of hunting. In fact, hunting food is in uh, rabbinic Judaism isn't kosher because you mm. did not slaughter the animal correctly if you kill it with an arrow. Mm. Um, in the Bible, you do have animals caught live with nets. You can, you can snare or net an animal or something like that. But hunting with an arrow, they must have been very desperate. Mm. You know, because they didn't have their food supply that they would have had as city people in Jerusalem. Right. Right. So they were really desperate. He probably never, maybe he never hunted before, just like he never built a ship before. So, <laughs> right, so, right. Um, so I think that's just really interesting that God asks us to do hard things and puts, not only does that, but he puts us into hard situations that we don't even know the exact right thing to do. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the real power of knowing the scriptures and knowing uh, the spirit through revelation. Yeah. Is is getting that sense because God doesn't spoon feed us everything. It would make it so easy if we did, but then we wouldn't learn anything. We would not grow. We would not develop. We wouldn't we wouldn't become anything. Right. Right. And that uh, leads perfectly into the second thing that uh, I thought was worth noting, which is the fact that Lehi, the prophet and the patriarch of this party, he complained, you know. Yeah. How how discouraging would it be if President Nelson fell out of sorts with God? You know what I'm saying? How discouraging would it be if he like lost faith at a hard moment in the church or whatever and just stopped being a prophet, just stopped doing anything, you know? I mean, it's happened before. If you look at the biblical record, there's many prophets that have a pro that they get into a conflict. Like, mm-hmm. look at Jonah, look mm-hmm. at Moses, look at Jeremiah. Look, at, there's just so many people who get frustrated with God. Yep. Look at David. There's just many, many of those. It's not at all unthinkable. It's actually right. more thinkable than the alternative. I th- mm-hmm. probably. Yeah, a prophet never having a problem or anything like that. A problem never. A prophet never having a quote unquote human moment. You know what I'm saying? Like there's precedent for this, which brings me to what Nephi did in the wake of this, uh, in the wake of Lehi's complaining and his, you know, moment of faithlessness. Nephi had to pick up the slack. You know what I'm saying? Nephi didn't let his own father's faithlessness deter him from having a relationship with God. He took initiative because his and his family's welfare depended on it. What he does in addition to fashioning a new bow is actually quite profound. Like Nephi goes, and with the Lord's help, I believe, he builds a new bow. And then he goes back to his father, who is still, you know, struggling, still out of sorts. And he asks him to do his duty as the Lord's chosen prophet. He asks him to tell him where to go to find food. So throughout this whole experience, even though Nephi didn't choose the same tack as Laman and Lemuel and Lehi, who's the prophet of the church, he never stopped sustaining him. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Which is a crucial thing to, uh, to acknowledge. Just because Nephi didn't agree with how Lehi was handling the situation, I'm sure he understood it, but he still had and kept his loyalty to the Lord first. And then when the time was right, he gave Lehi the opportunity to fulfill his calling and to magnify that calling. So he goes to, he goes to Lehi. He has the humility rather to go to Lehi and ask him where to go to find food. And, uh, you know, we know the rest of the story from there. Mm -hmm. But the big thing I wanted to highlight was that, um, when Lehi didn't have answers for Nephi, Nephi went off on his own and got his own answers. He went to the Lord himself and got his own answers. He developed a technology that allowed him to get the food he and his family needed when Lehi was not able to, when Lehi was not able to. So just something I noticed was that when uh, Lehi told Nephi what he needed to do, mm-hmm. you know, to get the plates and stuff like that, what the words that Nephi relays back to his father are key. He says, I will go and do the things the Lord hath commanded. He recognizes that he has to do what the Lord commanded. And when he received a calling or received a message from Lehi that Lehi was relaying from the Lord, Nephi knew the source of that command. He mm-hmm. knew that there was a difference between his father and the Lord. And he kept his loyalty to the Lord first and then to his father, the prophet. Right. There's uh, in this in this section here this week, we've got 
two good sources that talk about the justification for queer theology. People will say, well, how do you, where do you derive your justification for, for doing queer theology or black theology or feminist theology or any of these? And it comes from one thing is likening the scriptures unto yourselves. Like we are told to read the scriptures from our context and from our lived experiences. That's mm -hmm. not playing outside the rules. It actually is the rules. Yeah. And two, we have in this section this broken bow. And, and there's a, a three-step process that happens here. Nephi, step one, notices the problem. He notices that there's no food. Okay. Step two, he developed a technology to address that problem on his own initiative. That is the, the new wooden bow. And then step three is that he um, asked his what we would call now a priesthood leader, where I sh where should I direct this technology? And see, that's literally what he did. He asked his father, where where do now he built the bow first, and then asked mm -hmm. if it was okay to use, you know, where did how to d deploy that? And I think that's the same thing with with our whatever resources we create f um, to help queer people thrive. That's like the broken bow. I don't have to wait for the prophet to tell me, Derek, you need to do this podcast or you need to do this or you need to write this thing or you need to you know help your own people thrive mm -hmm. and survive in the church mm -hmm. i'm doing that and then once i've got this out here that i'm saying then i'm allowing priesthood leaders to say here's where it should go and yeah. that i think is there's a legitimacy to that a lot of people in the like this mid-level bureaucracy say we can't do anything unless it comes from above i'm mm -hmm. like that's not what anything mm -hmm. how god works right and notice what Lehi, what Nephi did is different than what Laman and Lemuel did. Yes. Laman and Lemuel did the same thing, except they stopped at step one, which I said was notice a problem. Right. They noticed the same, they noticed the same problem that, that Nephi did. Mm -hmm. They all noticed there was a lack of food. Right. Nephi then took some initiative and then did something about that. Right. Now I'm noticing some homophobia in the church. Mm-hmm. Right. I've noticed the problem and I'm not just stopping with noticing the problem. I'm doing something about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a good way of likening this scripture unto my myself and my situation. So that's kind of my one way of articulating the rationale behind specifically queer theology. Thank you. And I noticed that as uh, well as I read this particular uh, story because with, with regard to the bureaucracy or just anybody else in the church, they'll see people like you, Derek, who are developing this technology and applying it in real time. And they're like, oh, you're going apostate because this isn't in the scriptures or this is beyond what the brethren have opposed. Not recognizing that one, this is actually in the scriptures. It's in First Nephi 19. And two, just because the brethren haven't prescribed it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. Like Nephi is doing, y'all are just trying to eat. You know what I'm saying? Like right. Nephi was just trying and to we're feed not his family. Asking, we're, not, we're not asking for anything special. We're just asking yes. for everything that straight people take for granted every day of yeah. their life in this church. Yeah, yeah. Nothing unusual about starting a family with the person you love. Mm -hmm. Like why is it somehow this radical thing when I try to do it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's just the most normal thing in the world when straight people, right. when all are right. alike unto God. And somehow they make it like it's this big ask or right. this big revelation is needed or this right. big change is needed. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's not how it works. No, like, it's not. All you have to do is ask yourself, are, are we fully human and are we fully capable of, of doing everything and receiving everything that straight people have? And mm -hmm. like, of course we are. And that's, right. that's all you need. And think there's, about, oh, sorry, go ahead. And there's no big 
I mean, yeah, and there's a sense in which some people were going to need this big revelation, but the truth is already here. Mm-hmm. You just have to open and, and be open your eyes and being be willing to receive it. Mm-hmm. And think about the consequences if Nephi didn't act, if he didn't take any initiative. You know, his suffering would have been prolonged. His family would have, like, starved. You know what I'm saying? Like, what Nephi did was a matter of survival. Like, he couldn't not take initiative and not build a bow and not go to the Lord and figure out what he needs to do to feed his family. Like, you, you can't be mad at a whole people when the prophet, Lehi, or President Nelson, or whoever it is, if they don't have any answers for you, you can't be mad at the people who are trying to find answers themselves. You really can't. Right, right. So, like, Nephi, what he shows us, in, in particular in this uh, context of queer theology, he shows us that we can still sustain the prophet while making our own way when they can't show us the way. And the other thing is, what was brilliant about Nephi, and I have this is going to be a little self-congratulatory, but <laughs> what was brilliant about Nephi is his his reliance upon the scriptures. Yeah, he yeah. he cited look what how what God did in Exodus. This mm-hmm. is our past. Yes, this is what God did for our ancestors taking them out of Egypt. And then he looked at the prophecies of Isaiah to talk about the future. He says, mm-hmm. look, there's going to be a scattering of Israel and then a gathering. What What's happening to us is part of the scattering. We're yeah. being scattered across, but it will all work out. And so that's the strength that he relied upon when he was trying to explain things to his brothers. Yeah, that actually segues perfectly into the story of Nephi building a ship, uh, which is in uh, chapter 17. So uh, there's actually this moment where this is uh, super relevant, which is when um, Nephi's brothers start to rejoice in his sorrow. And they come at him with all kinds of BS, talking about how the people of Jerusalem were righteous and how they should have never left and how the eight years they sojourned in the wilderness were hard. They, they attack, uh, you know, the size of his faith, much in the same way Satan attacks us in uh, the midst of a great undertaking, whether it's overcoming addiction, magnifying a calling, or trying to have your humanity recognized uh, by the church. Any seeming failure can have the words of Laman and Lemuel ringing in our heads and hearts. Quote, We knew you couldn't do it, for ye knew ye were lacking in judgment. Wherefore, thou canst not accomplish so great a work. Close quote. Then in the next three verses, Laman and Lemuel just proceed to pile it on and enumerate all the hardships and difficulties that they've experienced to that point that seem to validate their initial statement of, quote, thou canst not accomplish so great a work, close quote. Now, what's really important is how Nephi responds, which is exactly what Derek has said. They re- he responds with counsel we receive in uh, you know chapter 19 to liken all the scriptures unto ourselves. And in the style of Martin Luther King Jr., Nephi uses the dope literary device of anaphora to make his point in verses 25 through 29. Now ye know that the children of Israel were in bondage, and ye know that they were laden with tasks which were grievous to be borne. Wherefore ye know it must needs be a good thing for them that they should be brought out of bondage. Now ye know that Moses was commanded of the Lord to do that great work, and ye know that by his word the waters of the Red Sea were divided hither and thither, and they passed through on dry ground. But ye know that the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea, who were the armies of Pharaoh, and ye also know that they were fed with manna in the wilderness. Yea, and ye also know that Moses, by his word, according to the power of God which was in him, smote the rock, and there came forth water, that the children of Israel might quench their thirst. 
Nephi is deferring to the scriptures to tell his brothers, this is not the end of our journey. This doesn't have to be the end of our journey. And this is not a reason for us to lose faith. Like this is one of the most important things that we are doing today when we are reading queer theology into this story of the broken bow. We are likening the scriptures to ourselves. We could similarly say, you know that Nephi broke his bow. And when he did, the Lord helped him build one, even when the prophet wasn't helping him. Ye know that there is precedent for a prophet falling out of sorts with God and the people having to pick up the slack. That is something we can say today as we liken the scriptures unto ourselves. And that's exactly what Nephi did when his brothers came up to him with all kinds of nonsense. Even though this was a heavy task, Nephi knew better. He knew that the Lord delivered his people in, uh, out of the hands of the Egyptians. And he knew that the Lord would deliver him and his family. Yeah, more Nephi and less Wi-Fi. Ha <laughs> ha! Nice. Can't get, can't get through an episode without these, Derek. <laughs> I was like, when is it coming? It's going to come sometime. Yeah, but I loved how you did that. And I want to point out that this whole exodus from Egypt is literally a liberation from the closet because they Ooh. could not be themselves in yes. Egypt. They did not control their own identity or their own freedom, their own lives. They were defined by their relationship to their Egyptian yes. masters. And then the Lord liberated from this. You know, Mitzrayim which is the Hebrew word for Egypt, really means the narrow place. Mm. It's a very tight, narrow. Um, if you look at the, the Nile, it is a, just a very narrow strip of fertile land throughout Egypt. And it's just such a narrow place, and it's very constricting and confining. It's the closet. And I think God is always liberating us from these closets. And and this, this is the thing about queer theology is that everyone's got closets. It's just that we who are queer, we're get, we've are forced to deal with them sooner and bigger than other people. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's no, you know, straight privilege means that you don't actually have to deal with some of your own closets mm -hmm. because yep. you can just flow through life. Mostly. Okay. Mm -hmm. There, I cannot flow through life easily as mm -hmm. a queer person. Mm -hmm. I have to deal with my closet. Yes, sir. And what I'm here to say is that there's something for everyone here. There's all parts of our identity that we would be horrified for other people people to find out there's all mm -hmm. sorts of ways that we can't be ourselves because society says that this part of you is not okay and i think there's there's liberation to be there in the name of christ yes sir and let's see what i was going to say about the the yeah and that's all i was going to say about that for now okay cool we can go on to the um sort of this the ship well yeah maybe just let's say one thing about the ship building okay. because Part of what Laman and Lemuel did in their murmuring in chapter 17 was to say, well, you don't know what you're doing and you can't do this, which is exactly what some well-meaning straight people in the church tell me. They say, yes, no, you can't change the church. Mm -hmm. You Not only is it wrong to try, but you won't even succeed if you do try. And I'm mm -hmm. like, of course I'm going to succeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what kind of Lord, Lord is that that would send me here and forget about me? What the, Lord do we worship? That he puts us in these situations without a way to liberate ourselves. Like, And look at how the Lord delivered Nephi. Look at how the Lord mm -hmm. delivered the children of Israel mm -hmm. from, the, from Egypt. Look mm -hmm. at how the Lord delivered Daniel. There's all of these things. Stories of liberation. Exactly. So many of like, them. If that's the living God who has a relationship with people again in this day, of course it's going to happen. There's no doubt about it. That's actually what Nephi said at the end of relaying all this stuff. If the Lord has such great power and he's done all these great things for the children of Israel, children of men, how is it that he cannot instruct me to build a ship? 
If the Lord has done all those yep. things, how can he not instruct us to find a way for gay people to simply enjoy the same blessings as everybody else? Right. How exactly. can't he do it? Exactly. I think it's more impossible for God to not do it. Right. It's it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. Right? God is God can do these impossible things. Or he, he can do what people say is impossible. Yes. People will tell me inside and out. Even people who have left the church, they say that it's never going to change. That would like, make them feel better, yeah. Is, of course it's going to change. It, it, it's going to. It's going to be even faster and more beautiful than anyone can imagine. Yep. And let's talk about this building a ship because one point that I have is he had to start from scratch. Yeah. He, he didn't have scratch. tools. He had to get the ore to build the tools, and he had to get build the tools in order to build the ship. And he had to mm-hmm. cut all his own wood. And 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 this is kind of an abstract point that I'm making, but he had to start from scratch. And there's something to be said about how we construct our theology in the in the church. Sometimes we have to start over from the beginning. Mm. Like we may not be able to use all of Brigham Young's quotes on certain issues. <laughs> we have to dig deeper and 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 start over. Right. Because Nephi didn't have tools. He didn't have that. He had to start over from the raw materials. And we who are doing theology around the family in, in this church, we have to start over asking some basic questions like what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to be made male and female? All these questions. We can't inherit the tools of our previous generation. We mm. have to start over making the tools ourselves. Right. And uh, that reminds me of something that's in the Mishnah in the in Pirkei Avot chapter 5. There's this really beautiful, t- this is a rabbinical Jewish document. Okay. Uh, around the, the second century uh, of the common era. And it's there's this really interesting text about God being a procrastinator and waiting until twilight on the sixth day of creation, which is right before Shabbat starts, so he can't create anything once the evening falls. Right at the last minute on the sixth day of creation, God creating ten things. And there's a list of these ten things. And then it also adds a few extra that says, and some say... And this is the last thing mentioned. Some say that God created tongs on the last day at the last moment because tongs can only be made with tongs. <laughs> and <laughs> what? Okay. Um, that's what it this says. Is fascinating. That that's the last thing that God created was tongs because here's the thing. If you're going to make a pair of tongs, you need tongs to get them out while they're hot. Right. And you can't get started unless you have tongs. So God, in in this divine wisdom, created the first pair of tongs so that when humans need to make tongs, they have some tongs to make their tongs. <laughs> gotcha. And um, so what God created was actually the, the tong of tongs. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> and um, I just find that so interesting that... that Nephi was able to do what apparently you can't do is start from nothing Mm -hmm. and get your tongs, get those tools that you need. We who are queer in the church, we, we have to start from nothing in some sense. Mm. Uh, We can't use everything that the straight people have used to build their self understanding. We have to start from scratch and have it built baked in justice and equality and integrity yeah baked in i am sure a very similar thing is true with race in the church you yeah. can't just take everything over without critically reanalyzing and starting right. all over and and 
and questioning everything yeah. that we've received. That's literally what Marvin and Darius did with their uh, presentation on blacks in the scriptures. They helped us by, you know, doing the work of putting us in the scriptures in a way that doesn't claim us to be cursed. They read it with the new eyes that right. we needed in order. And that has, you know, done wonders for the black saints. So mm-hmm. I think that could be an example of disruptive innovation. Oh, absolutely. Well. Absolutely. I, I would say I was go as, I would go as far as to say that without that disruptive innovation, I might not be here, Derek. Like I might not be here with without that disruptive innovation because I wouldn't have been able to see myself. Um, I wouldn't have been able to see myself in this church. But thanks to the work that they did, I was able to hold on to my sense of activism, my responsibility to the black community, as well as my responsibility to uh, Jesus Christ and the restored church. I can do both of those things now, thanks to the work of Darius and Marvin. Yeah, I would love to see more LGBTQ people stay in the church and join the church. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. So that's all I have for the Come Follow Me. Wonderful, because we are at time anyway, which means um, which means I'll forgo the prayer roll this week and just move on to this little spot here about the Gospel Tangents podcast, which is a podcast that explores Mormon history, science, and theology from the best experts in the field. We talk to witnesses from of history, BYU professors, apostles, and hopefully prophets and presidents from the many different restoration branches and non-believers to cover the 360-degree view of Mormonism. Um, so yeah, for housekeeping, Derek, can you remind people where to find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Share us with others. And, uh, and, and, and do some of the, this own work, own work yourself. Like create your own tools that you need to thrive. You have that birthright as a child of God to yeah. to take control of your destiny and and find strength in the scriptures and lean on the Spirit and figure out what God is wanting you to do today. All right, that sounds like a great assignment, Derek. Yay! Yeah. If there's nothing else, we will see you all next week. Okay. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>